0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. On today's episode, we've got a conversation with a former cabinet minister, David Laws, about the life and death of Lord Kitchener. David has recently written a book, Who Killed Kitchener?, which explores why the death of the famous war minister on a British warship in 1916 sparked so many conspiracy theories. Our section editor, John Borkham, met David in London to find out more.
2: So, David, for many Britons, the name Lord Kitchener will conjure up all these images of that iconic First World War recruitment poster in which he's pointing at the viewer calling upon them to enlist. Um, When did you first become interested in Kitchener yourself? I think um, Kitchener has always been an interesting historic figure to me, particularly
3: because the experience and view of him today is so out of kilter with how he was seen by the public at the time. Uh, As you say, Kitchener now is only remembered for being that famous recruiting poster in the First World War, but actually he was a bit of a celebrity of late Victorian and Edwardian Britain, He was the leader who had uh, taken back uh, the uh, capital of uh, um, Khartoum in the Sudan and wiped out the the apparent shame in the 1880s of um, Britain, uh, losing a a war and the death of General Gordon. He had led Britain in the Boer War, in the later stages of the Boer War, and secured victory in South Africa. He was in his time as famous a military leader, as perhaps Princess Diana was a a public celebrity in our era and of course he died under these extraordinary circumstances and yet all we seem to remember about him today is the poster and I think that's a bit of a pity particularly given how fascinating his life was and how fascinating and intriguing his
2: death was. So why did you decide to write a book?
3: Well I decided that there was still unbelievably 100 years or so on from the Kitchener death a lot of dispute and confusion amongst the circumstances in which Kitchener died. Um, After all, he was leading the country in the First World War. He was the only cabinet minister in British history to die on active service. Uh, The circumstances of his death were alleged by the government to be fairly straightforward. But if you go online today and Google his name, you can find 10, 20, 50 conspiracy stories. Some of them still believed today. And I wanted to get to the bottom of these conspiracy stories. I was intrigued by the fact that the government didn't allow the release of the last Kitchener files from the National Archives till a couple of years ago. A lot of people wondered whether there was something that the government was trying to hush up. So I just thought that this was a fascinating
2: story and it would be interesting to get to the bottom of it. Okay, so you mentioned that he was made Secretary of State for War in 1914. And he was the first serving soldier in the cabinet for over 250 years. Um, What did his colleagues make of him?
3: His colleagues found Kitchener pretty difficult. I mean, he was a real military man when he came into the cabinet in 1914, which means that he expected to have his word and his instructions obeyed without question. He didn't like giving out information to other members of the cabinet. He thought that they... Uh, leaked it all to those close to them. He once famously said to a colleague of his that if he briefed the cabinet on military policy, most of the cabinet would have told their wives within 24 hours, except David Lloyd George, who would tell other people's wives. So he didn't trust his cabinet colleagues. He didn't like sharing information. He didn't like being held to account. And as the war went on, his cabinet colleagues got increasingly fed up with him. But it was the public with whom he was still incredibly popular,
2: that essentially kept him in his job. So in the book, you point to some slight sort of strange behaviours and some slightly eccentric displays. Could you talk a bit about those? Yeah, Kitchener was quite an eccentric man, born of an
3: eccentric father. He was brought up in Ireland. His father didn't really believe in education in schools. So Kitchener had a lot of home education. His father was an eccentric man who slept famously under newspaper sheets because he thought it was more hygienic than sleeping in ordinary sheets and blankets. Uh, He wanted Kitchener to go into the uh, armed forces and Kitchener initially seemed like he would be a fairly average officer, but, but really began to develop his reputation over time. But even when Kitchener became famous, he began to uh, demonstrate some of these eccentric traits. He had a reputation for going round on visits to prominent country houses or visits abroad and pinching pieces of porcelain that took his fancy without the permission of the people who actually owned them. Uh, so he was a quirky personality, uh, but he developed this incredible public reputation as a consequence of the wars that he won in Victorian Britain and his popularity with Queen Victoria and some of the other monarchs who saw him as a real
2: figure of strength in the empire. Why was avenging the death of General Gordon so important to British society? Britain in the 1880s was
3: truly shocked and shamed when General Gordon was besieged in uh, the um, capital of Sudan, Khartoum, for a long period of time. Uh, Gladstone, who was then Prime Minister, felt that he should never have been there and didn't really want to send out British troops into the country to rescue him because he felt that Gordon was supposed to have left the country rather than being sent additional troops to rescue him. Uh, And when eventually a rescue mission was sent out from Britain, it took so long to get there that Gordon and all of his troops were slaughtered uh, in the uh, capital of, uh, of Khartoum just before the British forces got there and slaughtered by people who were an army without proper equipment without professional training. Uh, So it seemed like one of those really shameful moments for the empire. Queen Victoria was furious about it and the country really wanted vengeance. And it was Kitchener who uh, 13 or 14 years later assembled a big army, uh, marched from Egypt, built railway lines across the desert and then defeated a massive um, dervish army just outside the capital of Khartoum, 40 or 50,000 strong. Uh, and that was a moment that the British Empire and people back in Britain loved. It stimulated a lot of patriotic uh, fervor. It appeared to have wiped out the shame of uh, of the the death of Gordon. And it was the thing that really propelled Kitchener into uh, the centre of, um, of, of fame in
2: the United Kingdom. And he also takes centre stage in the Boer War slightly later, doesn't he?
3: Yes. I mean, Kitchener took over uh, during the Boer War at a very difficult point. Uh, the person who had originally led the, led the British forces, Lord Roberts, regarded the war as over, declared victory. The uh, British government decided to strike a medal to celebrate the war with the dates 1899 to 1900 on. But the Boers didn't play ball. You know, they appear to have been defeated, but they actually fought on. And those medals with the dates 1899 to 1900 had to have all the dates rubbed out because the actual war lasted from 1899 to 1902, two extra years. And Kitchener uh, led the British forces in those last two difficult years and with considerable skill managed to deliver victory, but also showing flexibility, insisting actually actually that there had to be a negotiated peace with the Boer leaders without which the war could have gone on forever. Uh, So it was a great victory, but there were some controversies as well, including the establishment of so-called concentration camps in which many uh, Boer families died. How did the British public uh, perceive those actions? Again, in in Britain, the uh, victory in the Boer War was regarded as another major triumph by Kitchener. He received additional honours when he came back to the UK. He was granted another very large sum from the exchequer as a reward for his... Uh, success in South Africa. There was some controversy around the concentration camps. Uh, The liberal leader of the day described uh, the establishment of concentration camps as methods of barbarism. But as as ever, those sort of concerns were drowned out by the populist view uh, that Britain had won, that Kitchener was the leader. uh, And so his stature, which was high already
2: after um, the the battles in Sudan, uh, went even higher. So let's return to the outbreak of the First World War. Um, Kitchener correctly predicted that it would drag on a lot longer than others believed. But how effective was, was he as a wartime leader? Yeah, the first thing that Kitchener really got right was that the First World War
3: was not going to be over by Christmas, as many people unbelievably thought in August 1914. He saw that it was going to be a long war. He started planning for a huge army of literally millions of people who would be fighting in France and Germany. And that was his biggest contribution in some ways to the First World War. Uh, He was also, uh, although his image today is probably as one of those red-hatted generals that sent uh, hundreds of thousands of British troops in to die against barbed wire and German machine gun emplacements, he was actually a a great skeptic of the sort of head-on assaults of the First World War. And he sought, other strategies to try to uh, take the conflict to areas where fewer British lives might be lost, which is why he signed up for uh, a campaign in the east uh, aimed towards Turkey. But there were no really easy options in 1914 and 1915. We were fighting German forces that were highly professional, large in scale. And we didn't really have the choice of just sitting back and waiting for the new armies to be built up because... Germany was putting our Russian allies under enormous pressure and threatening in 1915 and 1916 to knock Russia out of the war. And Kitchener knew that if Russia was knocked out of the war, Germany could turn all of its forces on Britain and France in the Western Front and potentially defeat us. So he was faced with the unpalatable choice of fighting campaigns in France and Turkey that he was skeptical uh, would lead to a breakthrough. Uh, or simply standing back and let Russia
2: take all the pain. So let's now turn to the events of June 1916, as documented in your book. The Battle of Jutland had just happened. What's Where was the war going at this point? Yeah, the war was really at stalemate in 1916.
3: Uh, both sides were frustrated with the lack of a, of a breakthrough. Uh, but particularly in the UK, there were frustrations about the failure of our assaults in France to pushed the Germans back. There were stories about shortages of shells and ammunition. And then in Britain, there was the massive disappointment about the outcome of the Battle of Jutland, this huge naval battle between the British fleet and the German fleet, which was expected in Britain to lead to the triumph of the enormous Royal Navy. Uh, It was expected that it would conquer the German fleet, knock out numerous German battleships and help Britain to strangle Germany's supply lines, actually, although it was the German Navy that had to rush back to to port, they inflicted greater losses of men and ships on the British Navy than we did on them. And they managed to win the propaganda battle by getting home quicker than we did and putting out essentially lots of press releases saying that they'd won. So Britain was feeling pretty sore in early June 1916, worried that the Royal Navy hadn't One, Jutland, worried that the Russians were going to be knocked out of the war and worried that we were bogged down in stalemate on the Western Front and that we'd suffered essentially a defeat on the Eastern Front ourselves in Gallipoli uh, near Turkey, where we tried to to break through and failed disastrously.
2: So where was Kitchener going on the 5th of June and how was he travelling? On the
3: 5th of June, Kitchener was embarking on a secret journey to Russia Uh, via the northern route, uh, um, via Scotland, and then across the ocean to the uh, northern Russian port so that he could visit the military leaders in Russia, pay a call on the emperor, discuss Russia's war needs and what needed to be done to keep Russia in the war. Uh, And he was embarking on that mission. Initially, he was due to go with David Lloyd George, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Uh, But Lloyd George was pulled out of the trip at the last moment because of the Easter uprising in Ireland. And the other critical thing was that Kitchener wanted to make this journey very quickly because he knew something that most other people did not know, which was that a massive British assault uh, on the Somme, the Battle of the Somme, was due to start at the end of June, beginning of July. And he was absolutely determined to go out to Russia, Uh, sail out there on board a ship um, and then be back in time for the beginning of that
2: battle. So he boards the armoured cruiser, the HMS Hampshire. When do we start to see our first signs of trouble?
3: Well, the first signs of trouble were really uh, on the day of the journey that Kitchener was due to make. He had got safely with his team of of, uh, top civil servants and other advisers up from London to the north of Scotland. He'd safely made the transition across to the Orkneys and the huge British naval base at Scarpa Flow where HMS Hampshire had been allotted as the cruiser that was going to take him uh, on the trip to Russia. All was going well and um, the British uh, naval command had decided that they would send him on the usual eastern course around Orkney uh, off to to, to Russia with a couple of ships protecting him. But just as the uh, trip was due to take place, a huge area of um, low pressure uh, started to come across northern Scotland and blow fierce winds down from the northeast, gale force nine winds, and the British Admiral decided that actually this these were not safe circumstances to set off on the eastern route around the Orkneys because HMS Hampshire would be sailing directly into northeast winds, and so at the very last moment, he... Uh, changed the plan, uh, Admiral Jellicoe, and decided that HMS Hampshire should sail around the western side of the Orkneys on an unusual route and one that hadn't been swept for mines. They're not alone, are they?
2: They're accompanied
3: by two other vessels. That's right. I mean, there were two other small destroyers that were accompanying HMS Hampshire. They were not designed to go on the whole mission, but they were designed essentially to help Hampshire to get out of the most dangerous waters, because after all, it was sailing close to the British naval base at Scarpa Flow. It was known that German submarines often operated around there, tried to sink many of the British uh, battleships and cruisers that were coming out. And so Jellicoe, the British Admiral, sent these two destroyers with Kitchener to make sure that they were accompanying ships that could protect from submarines. And if anything went wrong, they'd be there to pick up people in the waters. The problem was that Almost precisely at the time uh, that Jellicoe decided to change the route of HMS Hampshire because of the wind direction, the wind direction changed. And when HMS Hampshire left Scarpa Flow on the evening of the 5th of June, instead of the winds being from the northeast blowing down in the face of the previously planned route, the winds had swung around to the northwest and they were blowing directly in the face of HMS Hampshire and these two small destroyers, which then struggled to keep up. When do we hear the first explosion? The first explosion, and we have survivors' accounts to try to date this, appears to have been around 7.40, sometime between 7.30 and 7.45 in the evening. A massive explosion that was heard by everybody uh, aboard Hampshire that sent blasts of uh, fire and, and hot air throughout parts of the vessel and an enormous plume of smoke that was visible from the coast because Hampshire was only a mile and a half from the Orkneys when the explosion took place. And instantly people knew that they were in trouble on board the vessel. Uh, the front of the ship in the enormous waves that were blowing in this huge storm started to disappear under the ocean. And people knew pretty quickly that that ship was in trouble and that it was going to be going down.
2: What were Kitchener's movements at this time? Where is he last seen? Kitchener's movements are a little bit sketchy,
3: but we think when the explosion took place, he was probably in his cabin or nearby having dinner. There are signs that dinner was being served for him around that time. And then we have accounts from some of the 12 survivors of him being seen, being ushered by one of the naval officers on board HMS Hampshire, up from the sort of middle decks that he was on, to the top of the of the vessel, to the area that would have been open to the elements. And he's seen coming up on deck with some of the officers who are part of his team and being waved at sort of violently by the uh, Hampshire's captain who was trying to attract his attention and perhaps get him on to one of the small boats that were on board the ship, which were designed to uh, save the crew in circumstances such as this. But there was a big problem with those boats because... They relied upon electrical equipment on board, lowering them into into the water. And the mine strike was so enormous that it blew out all the electrics on board HMS Hampshire. So it couldn't send out messages. It couldn't lower the boats into the water. And men started getting into the boats, just hoping that as the ship went down in the ocean, they would eventually find themselves on the same level as the sea, and they can gradually float off. That was the hope anyway.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: It was hoped that these mines that had been laid around the Orkneys would blow up a number of British vessels. So the target wasn't Hampshire, the target wasn't Kitchener, but Kitchener was caught by those mines designed to trap British ships at Jutland.
1: Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of. And what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/historyextra today to get 10% off your first month. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember, hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass.
2: So, as you mentioned, there are people on the shore who see that there is a ship in signs of trouble. What sorts of rescue efforts are made? What's staggering is how poor the rescue efforts were because actually this was uh,
3: the middle of um, summer, essentially, or the the, the middle of a period when the daylight was at its longest. Up at that time of year in the Orkneys, uh, it was light for most of the 24 hours. So at 7:40, it was still very clear to people on the shore, including the territorial troops who were on watch at the small village of Bursay, that this vessel was going down. They saw it almost immediately. Uh, one of the troops rushed to the local post office and asked for a message to be sent through to the naval authorities on Orkney. But unfortunately, the message wasn't very clear. It basically said that the that the vessel was in trouble. It didn't say it was going down. It didn't identify the vessel clearly enough. And then when the message got through to the British naval authorities further south on Orkneys, the different uh, members of the naval authorities took different views about what they should do. Captain Walker, one of the uh, naval commanders, wanted to send out two vessels immediately to the site of the sinking to, to essentially try to rescue the crew. But he was overruled by the vice-admiral on Orkney who thought that they better get more information before sending ships out. And that led to almost 40 minutes of delay, by which time HMS Hampshire had sunk and the 750 people on board were uh, either pulled to the bottom of the sea or potentially um, drowning in in almost freezing waters in one of the coldest uh, summers oldest students that they'd had in the Orkneys for many years. How many men actually got ashore? Out of roughly 750 people on board the vessel, both the, the members of the mission and the crew, only 12 people uh, made it back to shore. And they were the people who actually in some ways were in the worst position after the, the ship sank because they were the people who didn't get off in boats but, but went off in floats, which were essentially things you just clang, clung to while you were in the water. They were designed really just to be a short-term device to help people to bob around in the water until rescue vessels came. But the three floats that got away from Hampshire were basically the only um, things that got away from the vessel that people could cling onto. All of the other boats were dragged down into the water. And so it was people who got onto those floats who eventually were driven back to land by these fierce... uh, northwestern winds. But unfortunately, they weren't blown directly back to land. They were blown back at an angle, which meant that they were in the water for many hours. And a large number of the people on those floats either drowned or died of
2: hypothermia before they ever made it back to land. Let's talk about the immediate aftermath of the sinking. When do the British public first hear about this? The British public don't hear
3: about uh, the sinking until not uh, just the, the day after, but probably the morning after that when the morning newspapers start to be circulated around the country uh, with uh, proclaiming the news that um, Kitchener was was lost, almost certainly drowned and that most of the people on, on Hampshire were dead. And when that news breaks, it's an enormous shock. It's a shock to other members of the government. It's a huge shock to the country and the armed forces. Uh, and there is a massive state funeral Um, artillery fired off along the Western Front um, to commemorate uh, Kitchener's death and obviously shock amongst the public. It's an event, again, as big as the death of Princess Diana in our own day.
2: So it had quite a big effect on public morale, would you say? It had a
3: big effect on public morale. It had come just after the defeat at uh, Jutland or what was perceived to be a defeat. It was the loss of uh, Britain's war minister and its most high-profile general, So this was a big uh, shock to the British people, a big negative impact.
2: So it causes an outpouring of grief, but almost instantly there are these conspiracy theories being bandied around. Did any of them have any credibility?
3: There were, as you say, a huge number of conspiracy stories that were doing the rounds almost immediately after the loss of Hampshire and Kitchener. And not just sort of in the newspapers or in uh, uh, the more sort of salacious uh, gossip magazines, But actually concerns being expressed in the House of Commons by a number of leading MPs who were questioning why uh, Kitchener had been sent on a mission, um, apparently without escorts when the ship went down, Uh, in some cases suggesting that people in the British government were trying to get rid of him, suggesting that maybe the uh, Germans had found out about the mission and that it hadn't actually been a secret and all sorts of other conspiracy stories, for example, uh, suggestions that when HMS Hampshire had gone in to dock in Northern Ireland a few months before for some engineering works that some explosives might have been placed on board by IRA sympathisers that might somehow have blown up months later. And the interesting thing is most of these stories had some basis in truth. So it was true that there weren't any destroyers with HMS Hampshire when it when she went down. It was probably true that news of his mission leaked in the Russian capital before he went it was true that there had been an incident on board Hampshire when she went in for work in Northern Ireland in Belfast a few months before but all of these things were taken out of context they were little pieces of information out of which very large claims were
2: made none of which were really true in the book you also talk about a chap called Frank Power could you tell me a little bit more about him
3: Yes. I mean, not only were the politicians uh, in some cases stirring up these conspiracy stories, but the master of conspiracy stories was a man named Frank Power. Uh, That was actually a cover name, and he had a number of other uh, uh, bogus uh, names uh, during his career in journalism. And he took all of these conspiracy stories, knitted them together, spoke to some of the survivors, distorted their stories, and ran an almost 10-year campaign Um, much of which was associated with selling his stories to various newspapers, claiming that there had been an official cover-up and making outrageous claims about the circumstances under which Kitchener had died, claiming that he'd been killed by a German spy on rocks after the Hampshire went down, claiming at one point even that he'd found Kitchener's body and that it had been washed up in Scandinavia, and claiming uh, in 10 years after uh, Hampshire went down to have actually brought back Kitchener's body um, to Britain uh, and actually having brought a coffin with Kitchener's body in to uh, Waterloo Station. And his claims about that uh, were taken seriously enough by the Home Office that they seized and impounded this coffin and had it opened with the most um, senior Home Office uh, ex medical expert to see uh, what the body was inside and whether it was Kitchener and unsurprisingly found just a layer of tar at the bottom of it and no body at all. So Power ran this campaign for 10 years, which drove the British authorities so mad that eventually they did something extraordinary and they commissioned their own white paper to review all of the evidence about uh, Kitchener's death and to publish this as supposedly a definitive statement of what had happened, but it was the it was the power overreach when he claimed to have brought Kitchener's body back that finally wrecked his credibility and meant that the stories that he was spreading no longer had so much traction in the future.
2: How did the public react to the white paper?
3: The public on the whole, uh, as is always the case, was split between those people whose general mindset is to believe the authorities and think that uh, the story about Kitchener's death was perfectly plausible and those people who like conspiracy stories. And, you know, writing this book, I recognized in the stories around Kitchener's death, the same sort of ingredients that we see today in many similar uh, controversies. You know, think back of Princess Diana, all the conspiracy stories there were around her death and all of the newspapers that were trying to sensationalize. And we see around Kitchener a hundred years ago, the same sensationalizing by Um, Fringe elements in the media by some people in Parliament who want to make their name, bits of information quoted out of context. But we also see that the tendency of the authorities of the government to want to hush up, cover up, not investigate what actually happened too seriously. Because the government's own inquiry, official inquiry into uh, the death of um, Kitchener and the loss of Hampshire, was a pretty cursory affair which took place. Um, 48 hours after the the loss of Hampshire uh, that was concluded in just a couple of pages that was carried out by the officers reporting directly to the Admiral who'd sent HMS Hampshire off on its mission. And that inquiry covered up a lot of uh, what had actually happened around the the sailing of Hampshire and some of the reasons why so many people died and indeed why uh, the Hampshire itself was lost.
2: You scoured through a series of recently declassified records at the National Archives. Um, What did these reveal? The records that I I scoured through that were released over the last few
3: years, I mean, some of them held back for 100 years after Hampshire's uh, sinking, uh, showed that uh, when one tends to think that the government has good reasons for secrecy, that isn't always the case because the shocking thing about the files that were released back in 2014 and a few years beforehand, is that when you look at them, they contain nothing of real interest and nothing that would justify these files being kept secret for 100 years. I mean, there should be an assumption of openness of government information. And yet sometimes government keeps things secret for much longer than necessary. But what the Hampshire files taken in their totality do show is that the accounts that the government released in 1916 was very partial and that it did not investigate properly the weaknesses in the rescue mission that probably led to the the deaths of tens, if not hundreds of people because of the delays that were caused by the the, the very slow way in which the rescue took place. And also the official inquiry uh, skimmed over completely the decision to send Hampshire on a route that hadn't been swept of mines and to send that ship on that route, even though the wind direction had changed by the time Hampshire set sail. And if you read the official report, you'd think that the wind direction was still as it was when um, the Admiral, Admiral Jellicoe took the decision to reroute Hampshire. Um, unfortunately, the wind direction had changed, but the decision made by uh, the British Navy didn't change on the routing, and that was critical
2: to, to, to leading to Hampshire's loss and Kitchener's death. And do we know who laid the mine in the first place?
3: Yes. I mean, what we now know is that the mine was laid by uh, a German submarine uh, and it wasn't actually targeting Kitchener. Uh, the, The submarine set sail from Germany before the Kitchener mission was ever decided upon. And it was a plan essentially by the Germans to lay mines around Orkney, around Scarpa Flow, the big naval base, so that when the British fleet sailed out uh, in response to, to what was a planned German provocation designed to force the British fleet to come out and then try to trap it and destroy a lot of uh, British vessels, it was hoped that these mines that had been laid around the Orkneys would blow up a number of British vessels. So the target wasn't Hampshire, the target wasn't Kitchener. But Kitchener was caught by those mines designed to trap British ships at Jutland. We also know, ironically, that the uh, German captain who uh, laid those mines on the the German submarine U-75 then transferred to another submarine. And he was ironically himself killed uh, when the submarine he was on was blown up in a minefield laid by the British Uh, a year or so later Uh, when he was sailing very close to where the wreck of HMS Hampshire would have been. So he might have been toasting his extraordinary success in destroying Hampshire and killing Britain's war minister, but uh, within um, hours or days of of toasting that success, he himself had been killed in the same way.
2: Why do you think Kitchener's reputation has tended to suffer over the years? I think Kitchener's
3: reputation has suffered for a, a couple of reasons. One is that uh, he wasn't able to see, obviously, the First World War out and therefore be associated with ultimately the success of the campaign. Uh, His reputation was also trashed by people such as Churchill, who wanted to shift the blame for the Gallipoli um, mission during the First World War, which was a real disaster, from his own shoulders to somebody else. And it was convenient that Kitchener was now dead and couldn't defend himself. I think also people... Uh, didn't really understand the extent to which Kitchener was quite sceptical about a lot of those full-on assaults on the German lines in the First World War. He was not a big fan of some of the British generals, such as French, who oversaw that type of trench warfare, which was so um, unsuccessful. I think also Kitchener's reputation has been um, blighted by some of the um, after- Aspects of the conflicts in South Africa and in the Sudan. The stories about the slaughter of many of the Dervish survivors at the end of the Battle of Omdurman in the Sudan. The stories about the concentration camps in South Africa that mean that his reputation uh, in South Africa, by people sort of living there who are aware of the history of the Boer War, has suffered. What wasn't sort of understood about Kitchener was that not only was he quite a successful general for for Britain, uh, but also he could be a man of peace. Uh, it was uh, Kitchener after the Battle uh, of Khartoum, Battle of Omdurman, who uh, started to rebuild Sudan, who, who started to sort of um, focus on economic development for the population in that country. It was Kitchener who put his foot down at the end of the Boer War and insisted on a peaceful settlement, even indicating to some of the Boer leaders that if they struck a peaceful settlement, they might expect to get a measure of independence from the next British government. And he was also a great progressive leader in Egypt during his time there as essentially the the presence of the empire in Egypt, where he tended to side with the poorer peasants and poorer communities against some of the richer, more affluent members of Egyptian society. So he could be a man of peace and development as well as... uh, a successful war leader. But that is now forgotten. um, And more focus goes on some of the more negative aspects of his career.
0: That was David Laws. His book, Who Killed Kitchener? The Life and Death of Britain's Most Famous War Minister, is out now published by Biteback. For more content on the First World War, head to our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us again on Thursday for more on the First World War when Alex Watson will be discussing a crucial fortress siege of 1914.